uh, in the middle. Where do we go? East we go, west we go, Europe we go, CIS. And after 2014 was clear the road you took. Even Poroshenko was an oligarch. And uh, I want to remember all the listeners something. First, never get excuses for Azov Battalion. Never. Okay? Uh, to defend Ukraine for Azov is like saying, ah, oh, she got raped because the skirt was too short. Okay? And uh, when 100 people die in Maidan, that remembers me about our revolution. 40 years ago, 1,000 people died to get out of Ceausescu. So no need to excuse that. And when your army collapsed because corruption, infiltration, and by the way, nobody operates like green men and things like that. So I'm kind of puzzled here. Where are you getting with this? So the army collapsed. Uh, I'm not sure when the army collapsed when, <laughs> and where you, you're pulling this out from. The army essentially stood its ground despite the complete mess it was in in 2014. And indeed, as I stated, the army command in 2013 was compromised. It was infiltrated by Russian assets. It was injected with Russians, literally Russian citizens, on the highest level, highest levels of the command. And they eroded army as much as they could. The equipment even was in disrepair or much of the equipment, many of the equipment pieces were in disrepair. But most importantly, the command was uh, was essentially eroded. And when this clique of Yanukovych and you know everyone who helped him, and all these infiltrators of sorts that were brought by him when they fled, yes, unfortunately, the army was decapitated, but it never collapsed. Because this is something that makes it makes Ukraine different from Russia. This is important. This is something that is completely different in between Ukraine and Russia. Because when in Russia it gets decapitated, it shatters. It shatters. It falls apart. In Ukraine, because of the decentralized effort, because of the grassroots initiatives, because of the people themselves, it held together. And it was, Ukraine was able to rebuild not just itself, but was able to rebuild the army on the go in 2014. And it managed, if we managed to send our ground in 2014, we will be able to to overcome everything else because at that time the odds were completely against us. Now it's even now even now, despite the overwhelming superior 
numbers of Russians and numbers of their the upper hand that Russians have in artillery and the numbers of personnel. It's still different compared to what it was in 2014. Because the Ukrainian army is determined, the command chain is well established and structured, people are motivated and willing to fight, and they are experienced. And this is the difference. This is something that will enable Ukraine to remain. And as long as Ukraine's armed forces remain, Ukraine remains. Simple as that. And uh, you dropped something about Azov, so the typical Russian whataboutism directed on Azov. Well, Azov proved themselves since 2014. In Mariupol, since 2014 again, for eight years, they were regarded as defenders of Mariupol. They fought valiantly near Shirokino, which is to the east of Mariupol, alongside with other battalions at that time, with Donbass and other units, and eventually alongside with Ukrainian Marines. And they went through different battles during these eight years. They proved themselves, they got better, and they overcame the issues that they had initially. Eventually, they got incorporated into Ukraine's National Guard and became Azov Regiment. And right now, we are seeing the true heroes of Mariupol again, defending the city, defending the civilians, and uh, making their last stand literally right now. And uh, that said, let's move on with, uh, from Russian talking points, Russian disinformation, nonsense, narrative, and what about it? And Alex, to you. Hey, Walter, thank you very much for the mic. Uh, you know, you sound like the tiredest guy in the world right now, I have to say. So, you know, don't forget to take care of yourself. Um, my question is just kind of a uh, you know, more of a general question because I'm not entirely sure what the answer is and uh, hope you can help me out. Uh, do we know how much of the, the forces that uh, Russia originally committed to this theater are still viable fighting forces? I'm just not entirely sure what the answer to that is. Um, yeah, I'm, I'll probably not be the best person to address that apparently at this point Russia has approximately 70 battalion tactical groups many of them badly mauled specifically those who were active northwest of Kiev and uh, they were decimated probably decimated is not the correct term because it's not one of tens that were eliminated but in some cases 90 percent of these BTGs, Russian BTGs were destroyed. So after Russians retreated in the north of Ukraine, they immediately started to reshuffle the troops and throwing them back into the fray, into other directions, specifically towards Izum. So as we have heard today and yesterday, I believe as well, from uh, people from the 93rd, mechanized brigade what they encounter in the field on the actual battlefield 
is a large number or of forcefully conscripted uh, males, individuals, who Russians use as a cannon fodder, essentially to probe Ukrainian positions, to detect Ukrainian strong points and firing positions, and use these people whom they forcefully conscripted as cannon fodder. And Russians themselves, they operate special forces, they operate tank units, and obviously they operate artillery. In artillery, they have the upper hand. So they use the cannon fodder, which they essentially scraped from Ukrainian territories and forced people to to fight for no apparent reason, just because they they were obliged to do so and ordered to do so by Russian invaders. And uh, turning these people into cannon fodder, um, forcing them to die just to detect Ukrainian strong points and utilize the upper hand that they have in artillery to try to suppress these strong points. This is how Russians fight right now. So, and regarding the number of active battalion tactical groups, I have to, to double check the numbers. So right now, I don't have them. That's fine. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, just echo, donate, Maria aid, uh, come back alive, whatever it is, different pockets to the same pair of pants. I know come next paycheck, I'll be uh, donating uh, whatever, 100, 200, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, every bit counts. So I'm off to bed. Have a nice night, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Good night. So, Shaw, you just joined us. Ilya. Go ahead. And then Gary. And yeah, you can unmute yourself. So I think he got connection issue. All right, go ahead, Gary. Oh, thank you for the mic. Um, long time listener, been following this since about November. Uh, going back to the civilian aspect of this, um a social worker by trade and I'm just thinking long term in Ukraine, do you I know there's a lot of organizations that are already doing a lot to help. But as far as the social work aspect of it, or social services, you might even say, are there any agencies that are streamlining this process for foreign volunteer, whether it be virtually or uh, you know in person uh, over in Ukraine someday, however many months or weeks, hopefully not years, there's going to be people that need to find food, uh, shelter, adoption agencies, anything in regarding social work. Um, is anybody here currently aware of any agencies that might be going forth with something like that? I haven't heard too many um, social workers on here, so I just wanted to, to ask that question, and I appreciate it again. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night. Um, I would say uh, food right now is not an issue. Um, the issue is demining and uh, unexploded ordinance disposal. This is where a lot of effort is being focused upon and people are being trained in Ukraine specifically to to, to engage in these activities, to demine, because according to what we see, what is happening in the east and in the south of Ukraine, it's gonna be, the work will, will last for, for many years, if not decades, because what Russians do, they, they drop mines whenever they can they uh, perpetrate distance mining, chaotic distance mining. 
and this will be a long-lasting ongoing effort for many years and regarding social work that you mentioned i believe that one of the obvious and pressing issues is uh, psychological trauma that uh, was essentially the subject of these of those traumas uh, pretty much every ukrainian right now be it a civilian or or those who defend ukraine with weapons in their hands so this will also require a significant effort specialized effort understood and that's, yeah. and that's a part of it too i certainly appreciate that point thank you Hello. Um, go ahead, Clark. If you want to ask a question, please do. Hello. Hello. We can hear you. Okay. Uh, for mine, I just want you know say this. Okay. First, my name is Hello. Hello. Okay, I guess he lost connection. So let's go back to Shaw. Yeah, to you. Yeah, hi. I, I guess maybe I had an internet connection troubles or an app. Uh, so, uh, regarding the question about uh, how many forces uh, Russia has right now, I just checked the statistics. Uh, I don't know whether it's uh, like uh, soft Ukrainian propaganda because... Um, to to say that they lost a bit more is uh is good for the morale uh, but the numbers are uh they lost like completely in not wounded by killed and confirmed uh soldiers is very close to 30,000 uh more than uh 1000 tanks um more than uh thousand and five hundred uh btgs or btrs i don't know uh like uh 500 planes or maybe more uh and, and now there's an uh statistics uh how many they have i i don't remember how many people but uh it's it says that they have about uh a thousand tanks uh about 900 about uh 300 to 900 planes uh there uh there are some reserves so they have uh a lot of technique uh throughout russia uh in different storages uh but the uh the state of of this uh you know war machines uh lots of tanks are uh without you know turrets uh or even engines so the state uh is awful and the morale uh of of soldiers is very low so ukrainian uh intelligence uh does uh mm, like radio captures uh of uh russian soldiers that call home and our intelligence uh publish a lot of uh these captures where uh just you know guys uh less than uh 20 years old which were just you know forced they they were uh for first they uh, uh were like light uh that they will go to training now it's obvious that it's not a training but they're scared they're uh leaving and uh i don't know my prognosis is 
uh, in two uh, maybe month maybe three months uh, we will have a, you know tangible sense of victory because uh, because they have no uh, military strengths uh, and uh, inside the country by uh, pressed by sanctions uh, ordinary people they are beginning to sense that something bad uh, and uh, I'd like to, to comment about economy, uh, economics of, of sanctions. Uh, every politician has uh, wants to to keep his power, and uh, it's done by uh, you know vote keeping voters. Uh, and you know Germany and especially Hungary and uh, in, and in France. Uh, sanctions and uh, different responses to to this aggression mm, they are not politically you know popular uh, because uh, embargo on uh, Russian resources like complete embargo uh, will uh, raise the um, tariffs on uh, you know, uh, electricity, gas, uh, oil prices, you know, uh, gasoline. Uh, and it's it will affect the, the life of citizens of these countries and every politic understands it. So there's a humanitarian side, like help Ukraine block Russia uh, and um, a politically economical side, like Greece, uh, and and please their citizens and keep the politics politicians in power. Uh, thank you. All right, thank you, Shaw, uh, and to you, Cajun, Cajun or Cajun? It's Cajun. It's okay. Um, I just wanted to say on um, about the social work suggestion. I'm actually a medical social worker, and I know social work is often clumped into the the um, the group that just brings, you know, the the bag of food once a month or what have you. But I think it will be really pertinent, um, eminently, because in my case, what I do is I connect patients that cannot afford whatever medical equipment they can't afford with with people that I can basically manipulate into giving me medical equipment for my patients. So I think everyone's going to just have to work together. And I think I'm really hopeful that, that we are organizing behind the scenes and getting people connected with, uh, with interdisciplinary teams. And um, I don't know, I just kind of wanted to support my fellow social worker just say, hey, I think it's a good point, and I hear you, and I know that, no, we're not going to be out there demining fields. That's not our business place or role, but there's there's a place for making sure that, that we get people taken care of. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. Every, every bit and every piece of help is appreciated. And, matters. and by the way, Shua, I had a question for you. Um, did you follow all these intercepts that were recently publicized specifically by SBU security service of Russian soldiers boasting about torturing and killing 
uh, Ukrainian civilians and tens of them, literally, and uh, essentially calling their families and their mothers. Uh, well, uh, it's it's a very popular genre in our news channels, uh, but. Uh, they prefer to publish not about the atrocities uh, soldiers do, not to spread panic and, and fear, uh, but uh, they gravitate to uh, how how like weak they are to, to keep the uh, Ukrainian society morale. A lots of uh, a lots of shit happening, and uh, it's it's very logical not to show everything. Uh, because it's it's awful, it's scary, and it's bad for uh, psychological health in general. Uh, and uh, of course, they they show um, a big uh, bad picture. Uh, but you know, I think a lot of uh, information is just covered from the society. Like government already knew that Russia will attack, but not to spread panic, uh, they didn't tell us. Uh, it's there's a logic in it, I'd say. Yeah, but it's being publicized online about what what these phone calls and what is the subject of these phone calls. It's quite appalling to say the least. With the Russian soldiers calling their families mothers and uh, boasting about killing civilians and killing people in mass. Yeah, that's that's because they're uh, literate zombies, a lot of them, uh, and they are uh, they are said and they believe the information that. Uh, Still, they are waging war against some monsters, against fascists. They are filled with propaganda, uh, and and I guess some of them are just animals, uh, and some of them still believe that they are doing good yeah, by doing by doing bad. Hey, Walter, I have a question. Um, have you seen? Um, Winter on Fire, the documentary. Oh, shit, I cried. Honestly, I have not seen it. And uh, the, the reason for it, I don't know if it's a good reason, but uh, I actually have seen it with my own eyes. I spent like two months on my done. So I haven't been like since the very beginning till the very end. It was more of uh, we traveled back and forth occasionally stayed for a protracted period of time. And uh, I haven't watched the movie, unfortunately, so everyone always references the movie, but I have seen the actual thing and participated in the actual thing myself. Well, I I appreciate that and your courage. Um, I watched it in Ukrainian, and there were no subtitles, but I still got it. I still got the spirit of the Ukrainians. Um, and I, I'm going to rewatch it with subtitles so I can understand it even further. But I guess my point is that the imagery, the, the valiant uh, Ukrainians pushing back was, as an American, like astounding. So I get it. 
that was my comment. Thank you. Yeah, I wouldn't say uh, I showed some kind of uh, valiance or bravery. We just showed our support and uh, did our part, simple as that. And other people who were on Maidan, they did way, way more than we did. We just contributed via supply runs and uh, contributed with a... Uh, we, we actually, we have seen some some incidents and some attacks on Maidan. We didn't, we weren't there at the very end because again, it was back and forth and no one really was predicting what was happening, what was about to happen at the very end. But uh, again, for your understanding, it was three months of ongoing protests with ups and downs and periods of plateau oh, really? of sorts. It was a second drone and uh, it differed greatly. There were a number of attacks or police attacks, riot police attacks on Maidan, on the city square where protesters were, and uh, they failed. And for example, once per week there could be an attack or once per two weeks there could be a significant attack. And eventually just gradually the hostilities and the tensions went up and up and up because it was a constant escalation from the police unfortunately and uh, eventually the territory controlled by protesters also expanded and after the first killings happened on the 19th of december we were there on uh, on Rushevsko street they killed three people um, just fired into the crowd. Um, so I recall that. And uh, yeah, it went on gradually after that. And it was just 19th of December. And the the violent crackdown when they killed 100 on the street, it happened on the, on the 19th and 20th of February. That's when the, the whole thing ended up. The, was Yanukovych fleeing and all his autocratic machinery collapsing so yeah so, that said so, uh, basically that said we just did our small part we contributed uh, but there were more braver people who essentially stood their their ground at the very end just a handful of them actually well three or four hundred people were left on Maidan and these are people who actually made the made the difference. They turned the tide, and uh, even after they managed to to hold the line and hold until the reinforcements arrived. But uh, but yeah, probably these three four hundreds that were on the square, despite the all odds, when the square was burning and the police was killing them one by one. And even despite all of that, they threw themselves into counterattack onto the police and actually made the police flee. So that's why we we have monuments to them. We have monuments on Institutska Street where it happened. And uh, that's why we call it overall the revolution of dignity. It wasn't just a, a Euromaidan as it's colloquially called. It was a shift in how people feel about their country 
shift about how people want to see their country to develop and how they want to contribute. I think that's why Americans should watch Winter on Fire. It's free. It's on YouTube. It brings context to the conflict and not Russian propaganda. Thanks, liberal. Ryan, to you and then Soul Metal. I'm not sure how in the last two plus months of tuning into the Walter Report, it had escaped me until now that you were part of the uh, Revolution of Dignity, and I commend you for that. And uh, I guess I should have known. Um, we've had multiple other speakers in here who were participants in that revolution, and uh, although it seems like almost ancient history at this point, I think it's important to remember that uh, you guys sparked other revolutions of dignity around the world, particularly in Hong Kong. And while they didn't fare nearly as well as you guys did, um, you definitely reinvigorated the desire for freedom and personal autonomy and democracy around the world. And I commend you for that. Thank you, Walter. Um, I guess my question is, uh, what if anything has happened since this most recent hostilities have broken out to the uh, Museum of Corruption? Has that been attacked? Uh, I think oh, actually, it's, was... a good, it's a good question because the last time, the last time I've been there when uh, it was the first group of people. <laughs> I was among the first group of people who entered the thing. Uh, when the gates were essentially pried open and uh, people have seen what Yanukovych was collecting and creating in that uh, natural reserve of corruption of sorts or whatever that was. Just a huge territory with a number of houses. Uh, it's private golf course, uh, villas, uh, private car collection, and other weird stuff. A private zoo with exotic animals, uh, yeah, a, loaf, a, small a golden animal. loaf of bread that he kept on his desk like a paperweight, but it was actually a life-size golden loaf of bread, solid gold. True, yeah. I, I haven't seen the loaf of bread um there were some elements of golden uh sink golden and, toilet yeah yeah not not well, not completely golden but no, you know. not the toilet the the loaf of bread was was uh left there i thought that was one of the remarkable things about the revolution of dignity was that in any other country and what we witnessed in after the invasion of iraq was widespread looting but um, people who seemingly had absolutely nothing but their dignity after that revolution, rather than loot and plunder things that had been stolen from their country and their, their countrymen, decided to keep all of that stuff intact and turn it into a museum and a monument to something that they never wanted to see again. Um some sound effect here it happens occasionally I think it's so coming from it. another from another planet 
Um, well, <laughs> thank you so much for your brave for, for your bravery and that you uh, stood on Maidan and went to Majahiria. I went there too uh, a while ago, not with the uh, first guys, like maybe after a month or two. Uh, uh, lots of cars were stolen. Lots of things were, uh, you know, privatized by uh, people who who went there first. <clears throat> Maybe not in the first day, but but still, it uh, it it's not kept intact like it was before. Like nothing changed uh, about the escape of Yanukovych. Uh, there is a video uh, how he uh, leaves. Uh, and fled to Russia. He he went with six uh, full Kamazes, like Kamaz trucks uh, of cash, and lots of riches left uh, behind. Yeah, that's uh, a really uh, I don't know the uh, scientific proof uh, that it was solid gold, but yeah, uh, the bread loaf of gold. Um, shocked <laughs> lots of people. Like, like, why? Uh, and I think, yeah, the... I think you're. This is where you're actually correct. I think some of the cars from that collections were, like, the newer cars were taken. But overall, everything else remained as it is, as it was, because uh, it's a vast territory. All these buildings, they uh, essentially. What we did, we just we just went uh, around in a weird sort of a tour, just uh, eyeing everything. And after that, it's kind of cool that they uh, kept it as it was and created some sort of a not a kindergarten but a summer camp for kids in there. Summer summer camp for adults, like more. <laughs> Uh, and I, I'd like to to tell uh, maybe uh, some one of you don't know uh, why the Maidan started and not the uh, formal reason uh, like students were beaten, uh, but why the students came there uh, because the government of Ukraine promised uh, uh, its citizens uh, the European direction of uh, development. Uh, of the economic. And then suddenly uh, they uh, signed the uh, some treaty with Russia and uh, gravitated uh, roughly, uh, like very unexpectedly toward the uh, trade with Russia and, uh, you know, the declination uh, to, to move towards Europe. And because of uh, they fooled its citizens uh, for uh, quite a long time. Uh, all this protest started because, like, fucking why? You <laughs> you tell us you tell us so much lies, and now we are we are Russia. Uh, we are going there, uh, and and that uh, eff affected, and uh, that's why the the first. Uh, you know, members uh, of this Maidan group just came out. And uh, I'd like to also mention that uh, the strategy of the Maidan was just to hold. Uh, in, in Russia, uh, 
they they just demonstrate and and go back home some of them get arrested uh, and on maidan uh, people who were captured uh, by the police forces uh, other protesters uh, like grab them back from the police and that they had a, a fight uh, clashes with the police just to to free their captured uh you know brothers uh and in hong kong the strategy was to uh make some diversions in different uh parts of town like affect the infrastructure block the roads uh because uh i don't know maybe it's a geography maybe something else maybe they had uh, lots of cops uh more cops um so uh the main thing that, that i'm trying to say that in russia they doesn't have the uh you know uh such a strong horizontal connections between people like this brotherhood and uh they don't uh, you know make strongholds and and then keep them that's that. Yeah, and also you, it's not just about European integration. It's deeper than that. The indignation was uh, was growing for five years, at least after Yanukovych became a president. He started to essentially build the police state and eventually shifted into autocratic state or attempted to build such. And a few things, notable things prior to 2014 that happened and actually became uh, one of the many impeti or impetus uh, for this upheaval that uh, eventually resulted in Maidan. And there were a number of mm, events when police uh, in smaller towns, I don't recall the name, unfortunately, but the police were apprehending people and killing them in the police stations. Specifically, there was a woman who was raped and killed in one of the smaller towns by the policemen. Then uh, her family attempted to to kind of to because she wasn't released, and uh, they attempted to figure out what happened to her. And apparently, some of them were also killed. So, and then the whole village kind of rebelled or the whole town and torched the police station and burned it to the ground. I believe with some of the policemen as well. And uh, it was one of those incidents that that was indicative of where Ukraine is heading to and what Yunukovych was attempting to build, essentially a copy of the police state that currently Russia is, autocratic police state. And uh, Ukrainians didn't want to, to go that way, obviously. And uh, eventually it was an indignation and uh, all this corruption and all this police brutality and uh, all of the ineffectiveness of police force and uh, ineffectiveness of government, ineffectiveness and corruption of government and overall the direction towards which Ukraine was going. So it was the background. Then we had the spark of the, the last drop into the bucket of sorts. 
the last drop was beating of these people who were protesting initially on the square just kids who just camped out in tents on city square and they were beaten violently by the riot police and it was broadcasted on the live tv everyone watched were appalled and in ukraine when someone sees something like that when someone sees the indignation happening unlike russia we want to respond to that and we want to to fix the indignation to fix the injustice and the next morning all of Kiev was full of people so millions were in the street in the streets and filled the central square and never never left essentially that's how my dance started the background was there people were not satisfied to say the least with where ukraine was heading to and then there was a final drop and essentially it turned the tide um that said so metal came to you the uh the insane conversation between the uh russian soldier and his mother uh was that released by the russians who's how did how did we wind up with that whole thing recording that it was intercepted and recorded by Ukraine. Was it like they put it up there for show and they knew it would be intercepted? So they they recorded the interception and uh, apparently they recorded the war crime or evidence of war crime and it's just posted it or made it public. Because if the Russians released that on purpose, uh, I would say that the reason, like if they wanted people to hear that, it would be more of like a normalization of um, towards the troops that they would be accepted by their mothers towards the Russian mothers that they should accept this. If they hear this, like it's um, it's a normalization. It's like trying to tell them that that's the new normal, some sort of warped virtue signaling type thing. And also a threat as a threat that this was just going to be the new normal of how they acted or something. They're just trying to bully their way in, it seems. Right, but but it wasn't released by Russians. It was uh, essentially intercepted and recorded by Ukraine's security service, uh, and it was kind of inadvertently it happened so that uh, it transpired. So that said, um, whoever has a question or wants to contribute, please request a microphone. We'll be more than happy to hear from you. And uh, back to you, Shaw. I'd like to add a few words, yeah, because it's released by the Ukrainian uh, government, like a state of defense, uh, to show the real picture uh, and Russian uh, position, uh, Russian theme of propaganda is like their soldiers are liberating the oppressed people who are oppressed by uh, the key of like Nazi regime. Mm, and uh, like yesterday, I've I've read uh, a, a press release of uh, Russian uh, Lavrov, uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> it's absolutely lie. Like black is white, white is black. We are good. Ukrainians are bad. Uh, we are having no losses. They lost everything in like a few days, uh, and it's 
it's so bullshitty. It's, I don't know, uh, it, even Orwell uh, <laughs> in 1984 did not get to that level of uh, completely ups and downing things. And that's it. Yeah, it's true. It's, uh, it's absolutely, on one hand, it's ridiculous and uh, mind-boggling. On the other hand, it's uh, absolutely visceral and uh, it's appalling, to say the least, and hideous regarding what they do. Um, Joyce just joined us. Joyce disconnected, so we, we want to try it. Oh, Joyce, back to you. Hey, Walter. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I don't know. I've been haven't been on all evening, but um, have you talked about tomorrow night yet? Uh, night yet? Not yet. So we can uh, can start doing that. We we briefly touched upon that, but uh, the link is here in the nest. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, it, what is it? Seven p.m. Eastern time tomorrow night. I see John Spencer. Hi, Major. He's here now, but he'll be on, and Alexander Vindman, and I forget the rest of the list you got approved. I know Yehuda said it earlier. Um, is it Mikey K? M- M- Mickey K. And Jason. Oh, Giroux. Jason Drew. He's yeah, Canadian. So, um, and you can you can post a question or five thousand questions on Walter underscore report the Twitter page, and. Um, then they'll be put up for inclusion in the um, questioning of the panel. I think it's going to be an amazing night. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, I was reposting it around Twitter tonight, just to in different places where I thought that there would be interest. And I only ran across one person who went a little crazy, but um, it was funny how I forget Alexander Vindman. Uh, testified in a hearing in the United States. So I guess some people um, have that more as a a hot button. (laughs) But, um, you know, I think he's really smart and he's uh, really seen a lot of things that none of us have seen. So um, I don't don't know what a good question would be. Do you have any idea what a good question would be for him? Oh, it's up to you. Yeah, I'm just like, I don't know enough to know a question. Maybe, Major, can you tell me a question to ask? <laughs> I don't know. So hopefully you're all smarter about these things than I am. And uh, You still have uh, at least 12 more hours. Yeah, I'll have, to re- I'll have to make something up. Yeah. 19 hours. Yeah, I know. I follow his wife on um, Twitter. She's quite a... She's quite an amazing woman too, and um, yeah, they're just really, they're just really passionate and dedicated. I guess he was what, like born in Ukraine, right? Yeah, he's from Odessa. He left Odessa when he was four. Oh yes. Um, and we were just joined by uh, Colonel Chuck. Yeah, maybe he'll give me a question. He's merciful. <laughs> hey, hey, RJ, I, I was just ready to pop off, but. Um, yeah, look at Alex's background um, as an advisor to the National Security Council and why he testified to our Congress about you know, his experience with Ukraine, but also his amazing recommendations to how much we should be backing and what are the hurdles, everything from he was calling for a czar for the supplies flowing into the Ukraine weeks and weeks in advance of the Americans finally doing it. Um, but l- a lot of his expertise in 
American system, as in the National Security Council, the executive branch, um, how it all works, uh, how it did work, how it is working, how it should work, I think are all great questions in both what is happening today, what could happen um, in kind of the geopolitical spectrum of support that can and should be going to include reconstruction. But really, I mean, he's he's such a wealth of knowledge and it's going to be so cool to have him in the space. A good friend. Is there a chance I could interject real quick? Okay. So I'm glad that this room is happening. It's amazing. Um, I kind of just came in um, the last 10 minutes, so I haven't been able to keep track of what the larger conversation was, but uh, I'm glad I'm in here and I'm glad to see that there's a big room of people working on or who care passionately about you know, the situation in Ukraine and want to work towards refugee relief. I saw some of the things you posted, Walter, and it was very uh, interesting, enlightening, and great to see. I'm glad to see all these folks in the room. Um, you know, what I'm working on and my team is working on right now is we're trying to connect the Web3 community and just a uh, big group of people on the internet on how we can engage and, you know, use Web3 for charity efforts, for refugee relief. That's a big concern of ours right now. And so we've released this project and um, we're trying to just connect essentially with anybody else who's interested in this topic, who's trying to do good work here. So I'm really glad that you're doing rooms like this and that there are conversations happening like this all the time. Um, are you folks doing this like on a daily basis or weekly basis? I, I just went through your feed and I saw that you're going to have some great conversations throughout the, um, the next couple of days. But you know, is this like kind of a daily thing? Because I'd love to join and, you know, obviously listen and connect with anybody else who's, you know, cares about this issue and wants to help refugees. So it's basically why I'm here and um, I'm glad to listen and learn more from you folks. So well, the space itself is 24-7. We started to broadcast on the eve of the, on the eve during preceding uh, the new Russian offensive starting on the 24th of February. So we are in the 24-7 mode for what is it now? It's, it's like one endless day. 65 or 70 almost days. And uh, yeah, the space is on when we we occasionally have uh, our distinguished guests like Colonel John Spencer joining or new guests join and we, we essentially uh, make an announcement in advance and it, it overall it's like ongoing thing that with the 24-7 coverage since the 24th and if you're asking what is the good way to support or what is the good way to help? It's uh, by Amriya8. They're linked here in the nest. Again, it's a first tweet. Uh -huh. Yes, in I saw the nest. Yeah. Uh -huh. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if there's anybody else who would like to connect, you know, I sent you a couple of DMs. Um, let's chat a little bit later, but uh, I don't want to interrupt the flow of the conversation. Obviously, there's a lot of interesting things being talked about, but... Uh, if anybody else would like to connect, please reach out, follow, DM me, and then you know we can talk about refugee relief efforts and how we can really um, expand upon those. So feel free to reach out to me, anybody that's listening. Yeah, well, if you want to help your refugees, Maria Aid is a good option.
absolutely. I will look into them right now. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. And uh, grateful nurse to you. Yes. Um, talking about Colonel Vindman, and I, I keep going back and forth because I wasn't as aware then as I am now. Was he involved in the Obama administration at all? Because I still am like gobsmacked at 2014 that all of that went on and we did nothing. It's embarrassing as a, as an American. Um, I was just wondering what his role in government was in, at that time. Do you know? He was in the Trump administration. So he was the um, Ukrainian advisor to the National Security Council. So the Ukrainian portfolio inter- interacting, you're basically the Pentagon representative. Uh, so it, and then he basically retired soon after and I'll let him tell the story if he yeah, wants to. Yeah, no, I, I followed yeah. all of that. I've been following yeah. him ever since I heard about him. But yeah. I'm thinking back to 2014. Was he at all? Um, I assume yeah. he was in the military at that point, but not at a higher level then? No, I I, 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 I don't remember. I, I bet okay. you, don't, you don't get to the position that he was in without having been working on it yeah. for a long time. Yeah, I just am curious as, as, as how it fell through the cracks and why we didn't do anything then when it was just, I mean, I remember it happening and I'm pissed that we didn't do anything. And now it's like, really, I really want Crimea back for Ukraine, (laughs) but yeah, I definitely will be there tomorrow night or tonight, whatever. It's all running into days, but I'm addicted to this space. I'm here when I'm not working. So thank you again. And I'll be here. Thank you. All right. Thank you. And I believe we have uh, Sean wanted to add something. Uh, I'll see you later, L- later Walter. <laughs> uh, I was just popping in. Thanks. No I'll see you guys have tomorrow. Good night. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I was just read the news like this evening. It's now like morning here. Uh, so kind of, they are kind of fresh. Uh, that Russia uh, is uh, – Attacking uh, and trying to to destroy the bridges uh, through Dnieper River, which uh, like divides Ukraine into two parts, and they are trying to disrupt uh, the uh, weaponry which is coming from the west. Uh, it's it's on the bad side, but on the bright side, this fact tells us that uh, Russians are not planning uh, to uh, to go through the Dnieper River and attack the Western Ukraine. So uh, they have no plans or no faith that uh, they can uh, move like that that far that uh, uh, the other bank of Ukraine is. All right. Thank you. And uh, Tanuj Kabir wanted to share something with us. Hello. Yes. Uh, first of all, I would like to say namaste to all of you. Since I am from India, so that's why we say namaste. Greetings to all of you. And uh, uh, I suddenly came across your space and I saw you are talking about Russian invasion on uh, Ukraine. So that's why I thought to join. And uh, since I am from India, so I would like to know that what your stand what do you think that what india 
has done and how you look indian foreign policy what decisions india have taken because i saw india as a european countries and some north american and south american countries are against indian stand so i would like to know what how do you think what india is doing well, I can only personally stay, stay uh, pardon, I can personally describe my stance. And uh, it appears, unfortunately, that either India tries to play both sides of sorts, where there are no two sides of the coin, because it's clear and straightforward here. Russia is perpetrating genocide, you cannot pick sides here. It's just uh, you're either um, on the right side, which is against Russia, or you're supporting what Russia is doing. And yeah, I understand all the implications and all the connections. However, again, what what Russia is doing is it's genocide. And it's, it's really pitiful that some governments, uh, for whatever reasons, they they don't make an assertive, resolute stance and decision uh, regarding what Russia does in Ukraine. Yes, yeah, you are right. But when it comes to kill civilians, then we are against Russia.